0: This is always one of my favorite Sundays of the year. There's Easter, there's Christmas, and there's D now. Amen. And I'm telling you, apart from Easter and Christmas, there's not a Sunday on the church calendar that I look forward to more than this one. We are a church that's built on reaching families of all ages with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're in a church... And you don't see something like this, it's time for a recalibration of our priorities. Amen. We need to be all about youth, children, preschool, median adults, young adults. What do they call them now? Mature adults. How about that? Amen. We want to minister to the whole family. And one of the greatest things about Hillcrest is we got a little bit of everybody at our church. And it's what I love about our church. We don't target an age group, an age range. We just sow the seed of the gospel. And God has blessed us with a rich and vibrant church. And we're so thankful for all of you students who are here today. I'm especially excited about today because y'all get to be in here as we begin a brand new series of messages. We'll be for several weeks looking at one of the most important historic statements of faith in like the entire 2,000-year history of the entire church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin a new series of messages from a document that's called the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what a creed is or not. Many of us have been Baptists for a long time, and the reality is, if you are a Baptist, you may be here today and never have even heard of the Apostles' Creed. Because Baptists have historically shied away from things like creeds. And the reason for that is because a lot of times through church history, creeds, and a creed is really nothing more than a statement of faith, but across the church history, across the centuries, sometimes Christian groups have elevated the creed to the same level as the Bible. And we never want that to happen. But all in the world a creed is, is simply a a statement of faith. It's a statement of what our core beliefs are. Some of y'all are just finishing up with us a short series on our three most important core values at Hillcrest, worshiping God, connecting with others, and serving the world. And what we're doing beginning today is kind of shifting away from a look at our core values to a more extended look in terms of our core beliefs. And to do that, we're going to use this incredibly important tool that's known as the Apostles' Creed. When I was in seminary doing my graduate work in theology, uh, the degree that I was working on required us to take two courses in preaching of the gospel. Uh, The first one was kind of a theoretical course, it was like preaching from the perspective of what scholars have determined preaching ought to be, and so it was a lot of book stuff about preaching. But then we followed that up with a more practical course about preaching, composed of a small group of students that met together throughout the semester. And guess what we did? We actually preached. And we preached to the professor, and we preached to one another. And it was one of those things along your education as a student that kind of gets you shaking in your boots because everybody had a guide sheet. And what they would do is evaluate you. And the professor would, in fact, you'd have to go into the professor's office and watch your sermon on videotape with your professor sitting beside of you, pointing out everything that you did right and everything you did wrong and idiosyncrasies and all of that. And then your fellow students would jot down things that they took away from the sermon. It's kind of a spooky deal. In those days, when we did that to the class, we were given a limit of 18 minutes per sermon. Don't get any ideas. It will never happen at Hillcrest. I don't know how to say good morning in 18 minutes. But we had to get two in per class session. So that's all we had time for. You got 18 minutes to say whatever it is you're going to say. And we were only allowed to carry into the pulpit with us a Bible and a 4 by 6 card. Couldn't carry any notes with you. Couldn't carry your sermon manuscript with you. The only thing you could carry... Was a four by six card and what you could get on one side of that four by six card. And again, you're gonna be evaluated by the professor and about by your peers, all of whom are theology students. And I can remember writing in a font size about that small, trying to get everything I could. And the idea was only put on there what you need to illumine your mind and to remind you the larger stuff that you'd spend all your time studying and preparing. Just be able to look at a phrase and let that phrase burst forth with all of this stuff that God has planted in your heart to share. And really, that's the purpose of what we know as the Apostles' Creed. I mean, really the the Apostles' Creed, and creeds in general. There's been more than one creed throughout the history of the church. But a creed is just a statement of faith. That's all it is. It's a simple summary statement of the most important things we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. And so a creed is just a summary of basic Christian beliefs. A creed serves kind of like that four-by-six card did for me with respect to that sermon. It's an abbreviated statement that's designed to set forth the basics of what it is we believe about God and about Christ and about the things of God. It, it talks about the stuff that really matters, the things you have to know. You probably have been in the bookstores. Have y'all ever seen in the bookstores those those big yellow books for dummies? Amen. All kinds. There's one for just about every kind of subject that you've never mastered in your life. Auto repair for dummies. Football for dummies. Marriage for dummies, right? I needed that one. Uh, All kinds of things. Investing for dummies. Cooking for dummies. And those books are all about helping people who don't know anything about a particular subject kind of grasp the basics. In those small books, they're not going to be able to get everything about the subject in there, but they're going to get you what you need to go to kind of begin a journey. And that's what the creeds do. Things like the Apostles' Creeds are kind of Christianity for dummies. They just deal with the fundamental things, the really critical and important things that we have to believe, the things that unite us all together, regardless of what name is on the church sign out front. Now, again, Baptists have kind of shied away from creeds. I remember growing up, you know, the preachers would rail we have no creed but the Bible. We have no creed but Christ. We at our church just believe the Bible. And here's the thing. We at Hillcrest believe the Bible. Can I have an amen? We believe the Bible is the only authoritative, infallible, inerrant, truthful, guidebook, truth, living truth of the living God. And every creed has to be subordinated to the Bible. But here's the thing. Every Christian group that I know of, for the most part, says something like, we believe the Bible. Here's the thing. There are lots of heretical cultic groups who will look at you and say, well, I believe the Bible. We believe the Bible where we assemble on Sunday. But everybody says that. And that's why you have to, we have to, at some point, describe what that means. What do we mean when we say, At Hillcrest or in any other church, we believe the Bible. Every time a church writes a statement of faith, it's expressing a creed. This is what we believe. Every time a church undertakes a mission statement or a statement of faith of some kind, that's what it's saying. This is what we believe. This is what we're about. That's nothing more than a creed. In the Southern Baptist Convention, Our statement of faith here at Hillcrest is what we call the Baptist faith and message. And Baptists have tended to like the word confession more than creed because of the tendency for some to elevate creeds along the same status as the Bible so that the creed is seen as infallible. It's not, only the word is. But regardless of what you call it, all in the world the Baptist faith and message is is an extended creed. It's a framework that sets apart in an articulate way about the Bible, this is what we believe. And so all creeds, all confessions have to be subservient to the Word of God. Only this is the authoritative counsel of God. So let me begin by saying that at the very beginning. Now let me conf- uh, clarify just a couple of things before we get into the meat of what I want to talk about this morning particularly concerning the Apostles' Creed. One, it's not the only creed that the church has used throughout the history of the church. This is the shortest and the oldest of the historic creeds. The Apostles' Creed has been used by our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for over 1,800 years. And it's really brief. I mean, we captured it in a minute and a half video that we showed right before the message. So it's not very long. And because it's oldest and because it's the briefest, it tends to be the most popular. But it's not the only one. There's also the Nicene Creed, which came along in the 4th century, about 150 years or so after the Apostles' Creed. It's just a little bit longer. It has more stuff in it. But still an orthodox creed that's worthy of our understanding today. And then there's the Athanasian Creed that was written about 500 A.D., the beginning of the 6th century, and it's really long, which is why most churches don't use the Athanasian Creed anymore. It's just too long. But they wanted to articulate some things. It's okay. It's good as a written creed, but there's no way uh, a person can memorize that. So the Apostles' Creed, first thing, it's not the only creed the church has used through the years. Second, uh, contrary to its name, the Apostles' Those 12 guys that ran around with Jesus in the Gospels, the apostles didn't write the Apostles' Creed. Everybody hear me? Amen. Those guys were dead by the time what we know as the Apostles' Creed was written. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it contains the underlying fundamentals about what was taught by the earliest apostles before there was a written New Testament. So what we call the apostolic teaching of the early church, which is really what the New Testament is. The New Testament is the written form of what those apostles went around in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all across the modern world. It's what they went around teaching, captured in the form of a written gospel for us, which is called the New Testament. But the Apostles' Creed was the early church's leaders putting that together in a way that was incredibly memorable. And then the last thing that I want you to remember is that it is not exhaustive. In other words, the creed doesn't include everything. In fact, to get everything we believe about the Christian faith, we'd have to use a book like this. And aren't you thankful I'm not using this in our series? Amen. This is called A Systematic Theology. And this one that was written by one of my teachers at Southwestern Is over 1,300 pages long, man. If I started to go through this from chapter one to the end, by the time I got to the last message, I'd be walking out on the stage with a cane. No, we need something a little briefer than that. And so there's some things that aren't in the Apostles' Creed that we believe, and uh, it's not an exhaustive document. It's not an exhaustive teaching. But if you're new to Christianity, you don't know a lot about Christianity. If somebody were to come to you and say, what is it that Christians really believe? You need to be able to give them a short, concise, simple answer. And that's why the Apostles' Creed is worth studying and why it's worth knowing. In fact, we're going to be baptizing 11 people when I get finished this morning. And we'll ask each of them to give a statement of faith. And most of the time, it's a very simple statement of faith. Who is Jesus to you? What do you believe about Jesus? I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. I believe Jesus is Master and King. All of those things are true, right? But did you know there was a time centuries ago when all baptismal candidates as they or before they were baptized, they had to give a confession of their faith. And you know what they had to give? They had to give the Apostles' Creed. They had to say... I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I believe he descended to the dead. I believe on the third day he rose again. I believe Jesus ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Universal Church, in the communion of the saints, in the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This is what I believe about my faith. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. Now today, I want us to begin for just a couple of minutes by looking at the first line of the creed. The line that says, I believe in God the Father. And over the next several weeks, we're just going to take it line by line. We're going to unpack what the Bible says about each of these assertions in this most historic statement of faith in the history of the church. I believe in God The father, the late pastor A.W. Tozier once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into mind when you think about God? I spoke to the students a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. Told them a story about my youngest brother, who's nine years younger than I am, sitting at the kitchen table years ago when he was a kid. And I walked into the room and he was at the kitchen table drawing and I said, what are you drawing? And he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And I said, well, dummy, don't you know that nobody knows what God looks like? And he said, well, when I finish this picture, everybody's gonna know what God looks like. (laughs) A few minutes later, he came proudly bringing me the colorized picture of God. And it was this incredible flame Bright orange in the center that had all these multicolored shoots coming out of it. And I had forgotten the original conversation that we'd had a couple hours earlier. And I said, well, what is this? He said, man, that's a picture of God. And I've never forgotten that. That was his image, this consuming fire and consuming flame. The theme of D now is 2020. Talks about vision. Vision how you see, how do you see God? When I mention his name, what comes to mind? Well, the first line in the Apostles' Creed helps us to understand how we're supposed to see God, at least in part, namely as a father. And this is so important. It's why the creed believes with this incredible statement about God. Because it is absolutely true that what comes to your mind when the name of God is mentioned is going to determine everything else about your life. It's going to determine how you see hardship and how you see suffering and how you see difficulty. It's going to determine how you look at other people. It's going to determine the underlying elements of your faith. Everything about your life is shaped by either what you believe or what you don't believe about the God of the Bible. In fact, the existence of God is what separates a secular worldview from a Christian worldview. By worldview, I simply mean how you look at life in general, how you organize your thoughts about what life means and what life is all about. There is a secular worldview, and a secular worldview begins with the statement, I believe in matter and I believe in me. That's a secular worldview. But a Christian biblical worldview begins with this statement, I believe in God. There is no Christianity apart from a fundamental belief that God is, that God exists, and that he's behind everything else that's alive and everything else that exists. Questions often raised: how do we know that God exists? Well, it's not a blind faith. It's not a leap in the dark. I think it's very logical to believe in God, and the Bible paints a picture like that. We're given three rational evidences that God exists. The Bible says that we can know God exists because of creation. I'm going to talk more about that next week because that needs a whole message. There is evidence in what God has made. Every time you look at a sunrise or a sunset or a beautiful vista from a mountaintop, it just shouts, There is a God! There is a God! God is! And He's painted His picture all around you. So God exists, and we can see it through creation, we can see it through Scripture. I mean, all you gotta do is read the Bible. From the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the very last book in the Bible, Revelation, you have the Bible shouting the name of the great hero of Scripture over and over and over again, the name of God. We see it at the beginning of the biblical Revelation, the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get to Revelation 21, the last statement in the Bible where John was showed by God the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. The Bible begins with God. The Bible ends with God. Everything in Scripture reflects the existence of God. In Genesis, he's the creator. In Exodus, God is the deliverer. In Leviticus, God is the lawgiver. He's the great I Am. He's El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is, according to Paul, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, God is so magnificent. Just about every page you turn, you've got in the Bible a different descriptive way of helping us understand God. He is our refuge and strength, the Bible says, a very present help in time of trouble. God is our light and our salvation, therefore we need not be afraid. God is our rock, the Bible says, our fortress, our deliverer, our stronghold in whom we can trust. God is the king of glory, and blessed is the man or the woman who trusts in him. Likewise, we can know God not only because of creation and because of Scripture, but you carry around in you something that God gave you to help you know him better, and that is conscience. Everybody in here has got a conscience. so what helps you to understand the difference between good and bad, and the difference between right and, and wrong. Now, your conscience, as well as mine, is warped by sin. The fall kind of corrupted our conscience. It's not a perfect conscience, and that's why we do bad things. But having the presence of a conscience, even warped as our conscience is, is also a reason why bad people can also do good things. Everybody in the room knows somebody that doesn't know God, that's lost spiritually and far from God, but can a lost person be a moral person, yes or no? Yes. Can a lost person be an honest person? As the day is long, you better believe it. Can a lost person be true to their wife and still be married to that woman for 50, 60, or 70 years? Sure they can. Many do. Lost people can do moral things, good things. And you know why? Because God's given them the gift of conscience. Corrupted though it may be. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to conscience in the second chapter of Romans as the law of God written on our hearts. Everybody's got one. And it's why the Bible says, listen, if you ever read that passage in the Bible that's where Paul says in Romans, all men and women are without excuse. That's right. You know why? Because God's given every human being a picture of himself in creation. And God's given every human being a basic understanding of who he is in their heart. Therefore, we're all without excuse when it comes to our accountability before God. I've said it before. Ain't nobody going to die, go, to, ha- go to, the, to the court of the judgment, stand in the presence of God, and be able to look at God with any kind of integrity and be able to say, I just didn't know. You won't be able to say that because of creation, Scripture, and conscience. Everybody with me, say amen. But here's the thing. Here's what I want to get to today. The God we believe in is not only just an almighty, all-powerful God. Again, more about that next Sunday. Here's the thing about God. He's personal. He made you. He made you to be you. He made you to know you. He's where you've come from. And the greatest thing that God desires in life is to connect with you and to know you personally. Sin has separated us from God, but God wants to draw us back into a right relationship with himself. Why? Because that's what we're made for. We're made to know God. We're made to like Adam in the book of Genesis, to walk with God and to fellowship with God. We can know God. You remember learning from Will the other night, that great story of the prodigal son? You remember, he talked more about the father than he did about the prodigal son, didn't he? And that father in that parable is a picture of who? It's a picture of God. He's the God who loves, and he's the God who runs, and he's the God who hugs, and he's the God who kisses, and he's the God who gives, and he's the God who restores. That guy's a picture of our heavenly father. Who wants us to know him as father, to be able to connect with him in that kind of a relationship? God is bigger than the biggest galaxy, but that same God is as close as our next heartbeat. Guys, it's just an incredible picture of God, transcendent, but personal. Now, let me just say, you probably could tell from the Apostles' Creed that the God that we worship is a triune God. He is Father, He is God the Son, and He is God the Holy Spirit. And you notice right there in that creed, it begins with God, moves to the Son, concludes with the Spirit. And that's our God. In the biblical math, one plus one plus one equals one. That's right. And that makes no sense to people who don't know the Bible. And it's pretty mysterious to those of us who do. And it's going to take a whole sermon just to deal with that. And so more about that later. But that it, it bears stating at the very beginning, this is the God that we worship. Father, Son, and Spirit. But let me just talk to you for a minute as we conclude this morning about God the Father. Because 260 times in the New Testament, our God is referred to as Father. And virtually every time we have a recorded prayer of Jesus He's praying to his heavenly Father every time. In fact, it's through the discipline of prayer that most of us identify with God as Father because that's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples noticed that there were times that Jesus just got off by himself to pray. And Jesus was God, right? And then he would come back and he'd do all these miracles. And so they began to think, man, there's got to be a connection between praying and power. And so we want to get in on that because we do pray, but we're not living in that kind of power. And so the disciples go to Jesus with a request. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And it's in response to that request that Jesus gives them a model prayer, what we kind of today call the Lord's Prayer. And you all have probably recited it hundreds of times. And how does it begin? What's the first two words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Jesus said, okay, you want to know how to pray? Let me begin with the introduction of the prayer, how you are to approach God, or how you can approach God. And he begins with a very familiar term. And if there were any Orthodox Jews in the crowd, when Jesus said that, they would have gone... Because they would have refused to have addressed God that way. Too cozy. Disrespectful. Yeah, the Old Testament talks about God being a father, but we don't associate God with being our father. An Orthodox Jew would have said, he's only the father of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And guys like that those guys that walk so closely with God that they had a father son kind of relationship with but as far as the common man as far as the common woman no way am I calling God father because I don't want to get zapped by God I don't want him to judge me so you have to understand we we pray that model prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name almost take it for granted But this was a radical new way of praying for the people of God. And what does that mean for us as believers? Well, you know, the most important thing about our ability to approach God as Father is it reflects something about us, namely that we're His children. Amen. Man, can you think of anything more awesome, more glorious? more magnificent than to know that you are the very child of the God that created all of eternity, all of the universe, heaven and earth. That same God has brought you into his family to be his very child. Man, it's unbelievable. Let me clarify something. Y'all still with me? Say amen. God's not everybody's father. The Bible does not teach what some call the universal fatherhood of God. Although you sure hear it on TV all the time, hey, hey, listen, we're all God's children. No, no. We all come from God, and we're all the creation of God. We're all the offspring of God. But we're not all God's children. In fact, the Bible is very clear that you and I have to become a child of God. And the way that we do that is not by doing anything. You can't earn your way into the family of God. You can't climb a ladder into the family of God. You can't swim your way into the family of God. You can't jog your way into the family of God. You cannot buy your way into the family of God. You have to believe your way into the family of God. That's what the Bible means in John chapter 1 verse 12. Actually, you back up a verse in verse 11. The Bible says, Jesus came into his own world and his own people received him not, the Jews. But then verse 12 says, but but to as many as received Christ, to them God gave the right to become children of God, even to those who what? Believe on his name. doesn't say anything about doing anything. As many as received him, to those who believed in his name, they have the right to become children of God. And by faith, we become children of God. By faith, we enter the family of God. And by faith, we inherit the privilege of being able to approach God as father. Man, you know the thing I love about being able to call God father is it reminds me every time I do it of how much God really does love me. I'm well aware that a lot of times a pastor can get up, a a teacher can get up in front of a group of people, start talking about God as Father, and there's some people in the room instantly check out. Because when I say Father, you think of your father and you don't like him. You didn't have a good relationship with him or don't have a good relationship with him. Maybe you got a dad's got a temper or maybe he's got a lot of bad habits. If I were to ask you when's the last time your dad told you he loved you, you'd probably have to think. You probably may might not be able to remember. Not all of us have a good relationships. In fact, I'm a pastor. The walls of my office could speak. I'm convinced that most people don't have a good relationship or haven't had a good relationship with their father including me. I get it. Didn't have the best. My dad's in heaven today. I believe that. There's a lot of wasted years in our relationship that were not spent well. So I get it. But you got to be careful. When we start reading the Bible or you start hearing people talking about how God is your heavenly father, you don't want to build up a wall. The worst thing in the world you can do is... Develop a view of God that's unfairly colored by your bad relationship with your earthly father. It's not fair. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to God. Because here's the thing. If you didn't have a great relationship with your father, if I were to take a microphone out here and go through the crowd and say, well, don't you wish you would have had a great relationship with your father? Everybody would say, absolutely, absolutely. I, if I could rewind the videotape and do it over again, here's what it would look like. And my response to that is that's what you can have with God. It's a perfect relationship, on God's part, anyway. Now, you and I'll drop the ball every so often, but God never will as Father. If we have a problem in our relationship, it's not His problem, it's ours. His love is continual. His love is unconditional. It's perfect. When God disciplines, and God will discipline his children because he wants you to grow into maturity. He wants you to grow and to become a giant of faith. But isn't it great to know that when God disciplines, he always has all the facts and it's always a perfect discipline. Every time when my parents disciplined me and I kept saying, you've got it all wrong. And here's the thing, they did. They had it all wrong. I don't care. And then they would go through with whatever the judgment was. And I'd pitch the biggest fit in the world. This is unjust, all right? Make it 10 days then. I mean, it's like a bad judge. And here's the thing my daughter's in the room somewhere, so I gotta be real careful this morning. Because she knows how flawed her daddy is. I did the same thing. Earthly parents are fallen fallible, we don't have all the facts. Here's the deal. God doesn't operate that way. Perfect love. That's why we don't have to be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. We don't have anything to be afraid of with God. Amen. That's why it's a joy to be able to know that this creator God of everything that is is a personal God who says, here's how I want you to come to me. Just call me Father. Absolutely incredible. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8 beginning in verse 15. I'm telling you, when we talk about God, we're not talking about some force, undefined force. May the force be with you. No. That's not God. We're not talking about something out of a textbook. Thank the Lord. God is personal. The Bible says, Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, say it out loud, Abba, what? Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I love it when the Bible teaches that not only can we approach God as Father, but we can approach God as Abba. That's called, the language is Aramaic. It's a form of Hebrew, and it's a diminutive, what we would call a nickname. And Jesus said, not only can you call God Father, but you can do like I'm doing, like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before they put him on a cross. He was praying Face down in the dirt, sweating and bleeding into the dirt as he prayed to God. and how did he approach his father? "Abba." It means "Dad, Daddy, Papa." And it's interesting to me, you know when babies are born, they begin to stutter and talk a little bit, and typically the first word out of their mouth: "Dad, Da." Yes, mothers, it's more than mama. It's just easy. God made it easier for the babies to say it. Dad dad. In the Middle East, the babies don't say that when they're learning how to talk. The Middle East, they say Abba. And you grow up and Abba becomes Abba. Daddy. I'm called a lot of things. Some I can't mention here today. Some call me pastor. Some call me brother. Some call me friend. There's one that calls me honey baby. (laughs) That's enough of that. But then there are two who call me daddy. Now they about this big now. Still use the same word. And let me just tell you. All they have to do is walk into my office and say that word. And the pen goes down and the chair goes back. And not only do they have my undivided attention and I'm ready for the world to stop, I'm ready for the party to start. They can have as much time as they want, much time as they need. Because that has become for me as a person among the most compelling word in the English language. When those who are closest to me use it. And to know that we're given the authority to go before a God who not only has me to deal with. He's got almost 8 million other rugrats to deal with at the same time. And to know that when I do, everything with God stops. And I'm the most important thing that He's ever made. I have His undivided attention. Man, what a wonderful way to begin a statement of faith. And you better know it, because this is where historic Christianity must begin. I believe. In God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. This is God's Word and let all who agree say, Amen.